You're listening to audio from First Christian Church. To find out more about us or to donate to our ministries, visit firstabq.org. You are a gift to this world. Your presence in the presence of God is a gift to us, and you are a gift. And I want you to know something very clearly, that God made you, that God loves you, and that God wants to live within you. Would you pray with me? Eternal God, we're here, and we ask that you open up our eyes. Would you please open up our hearts? Would you dig out our ears and enable us to hear your word today? This is our prayer through Jesus, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit as one God now and forever. Amen. You can find your seats. Well, I get troubled. I get troubled when people walk away from God. It's probably not surprising to you as a minister, but it just grieves me at a very, very deep level. Because a lot of times, I don't have answers for the good questions that are being asked. And I can't even question some of the answers that are being given. But it grieves me when people decide, you know, I'm just going away from established religion. I'm going away from God. I've got... I'm going to do this on my own because I wonder how far we can go on our own. So just this morning, did my Wordle, did it in two, thank you very much. I opened up the New York Times and an article catches my eye of Philip Hancock. And I'd heard something about Philip who was on death row in Oklahoma in the fall, but I didn't know the story. Philip was a Christian when he went in. He had uh, a girlfriend who was on drugs, and she had gone to live with the drug dealer, and she wanted help. He went over there and got into an altercation with the two drug dealers at the home. They, he had no, he was not armed, but they got into this altercation. They tried to push him in a cage. He got their gun from them and shot and killed both of them, and a, a jury convicted him to die. So he's been on death row trying to get clemency. And he went in as a Christian looking for hope and yet walked away from God. In fact, an atheist chaplain, yes, there are such a thing, an atheist chaplain began meeting with him. And their path, and this is what caught me with this article, was to find a way to prepare for death without God. And that grieves me deeply to think that we can do something like go through our death alone and do it without God. It's a tough path to choose. You know, there's a block of folks that pollsters look to, and they're called the evangelical Christians. Now, you know, this is kind of a slippery group of people. I don't know if I necessarily connect with that group, but people care what they think, what their opinions are, what their voting is. And yet, the more they look at this group of people, even among that group of Christians, a lot of them don't go to church. Oh yeah, I used to do that, but I don't do it anymore. I, I do this journey of faith on my own. And I I'm not just grieved with an atheist, but I'm grieved with a Christian that thinks that they can journey through this life alone and pursue God as in their own closet with no one else. This series, this X-Life series, gets us into the harsh realities of life. 
Or we think about maybe the lives that we wish we didn't have as a part of our past. Things that we want that we'd love to shovel dirt on and consider dead and gone. And, and we've been looking at the exile where God's people are picked up and driven away from the land that He gave them, from the town, Jerusalem, that He pre- presented to them, from the temple. And it's in this time when God's people are driven away that a lot of people walk away from God for pretty obvious reasons, right? You look around, promises of God, bankrupt. We're not in our own land. That's gone. Temple's gone. And it's, a, it's in a time when a lot of people left. So we've been looking at this book, specifically at a chapter that's made up of letters. Letters where God presented words to Jeremiah the prophet, and Jeremiah wrote to these Babylonian exiles. And he gave them a message, a message that, as we've explored, talked about their changed reality, of how they could be a people of God and be in such a terrible situation. To help them think about their changed mentality that they have to consider a different way of thinking, of caring for and praying for the country that they now find themselves in. And you know that a lot of what I've been doing is telling you a lot about the whys. Why are they there? You know, why did this happen? Last week and this week, and in our final installment next week, I want to turn to the hows. With a changed reality, with a changed mentality, how is it that we're supposed to live? What changes about our actions? How do we live in our own exiled lives? Well, before I get into that heavy stuff, I've started already pretty heavy with you. I need some audience participation. How about Bible trivia? One of my least favorite things. But I'm just going to see. Now, if you've listened online, uh, I don't want you to answer. But what is the first commandment that God gives in Scripture? Anybody have any guesses? Just give me some. Be kind to your neighbor. It's a good one. No other God before me. Any other guesses? Okay, those are good guesses. I I would endorse those. Those are commands we definitely should have. But the very first command that God gives in Genesis 1, verse 28, is be fruitful and multiply. Yeah, you heard it from me first. God said, have sex. It's the first command. Now, I didn't know that you really needed a command to do that. I mean, we usually don't need a command to have sexual intercourse. People seem to do that quite naturally. And yet, if you look closely in all fairness, he says, be fruitful and multiply. Bear children. In today's world, you know, a lot of times we wouldn't need the command to have sex, but we have kind of separated off sex from the reproductive side, where it's all about pleasure. It's all about my own needs. And we don't really want to mess with the baby things. We want to block that. We want to abort that. We want to give babies away. But we enter into fulfilling what's not really the full command there. Now, you're probably wondering, okay, why did he bring up that? Here's why. Here's more audience participation. You wondered why I didn't read it first. This is where I want you to stand. If you're able to stand for a reading of God's Word from Jeremiah, this is chapter 29, and I'm going to start in verse 4. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, To all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem into Babylon. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry and have children. Give your children in marriage, your sons and your daughters. 
that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease, but seek the welfare of the city where I've sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So it's an interesting passage, and I've been approaching it very backwards. I've taken the verse that a lot of us know about God having plans for us, to bless us, to prosper us, plans for our welfare, and I've been telling the story behind it. And I've been telling you all the negative stuff. In this chapter, there are four oracles from God, four little sections that begin, thus saith the Lord. You know, you kind of raise your antenna and you're like, all right, I better pay attention. There's four of these, and I've looked at three of them, and they're all the negative ones. It's the negative prophecies. The positive one I've skipped, and it's actually the very first way that he opens this letter. In verse 4, the very first letter that he gives is he gives this very positive, this classic line of build houses, plant vineyards, get married, have children, things that sound pretty nice to me. I mean, it kind of, it's positive. This prosperity sounds like a nice greeting card. I, I prefer this little message. And yet, he's telling them that when they're existing inside of captivity, when they're existing in a strange land where the people are weird and it's not their family. I don't know that they really want this message. And it's clear over and over again as there are other prophets that give a better message. Oh, don't get comfortable. We're going to get you out of jail quick. We're going to get you exonerated. We're going to get these charges lifted. We're going to get you back home. That's the prophecy that they want to hear, but it's Jeremiah that says, well, not exactly. You're not going to get out. It's going to be difficult. In fact, it's going to be for your entire lifetime. Years ago, when Don and I were talking about having a baby, we said, do we really want to bring a baby into this world? Have you had similar thoughts? You know, it's been 23 years now since we had those first discussions, and the world is not more sane. It's more uncomfortable. It's more chaotic. And a lot of times we'll have these kind of discussions. I mean, it's almost like the world is this finely tuned machine to pump out anxiety, to push out depression, to create all kinds of mental health disorders. Our young people and our old look around at the pervasive, with a pervasive sense of dread that, you know, am I going to get a job? I don't know if I really want to go to college. I don't know if this economy can sustain me. Am I really going to live to an old age? Do I even want to go outside? It's so scary. I don't want to be around other people. The weather changes. The political climate, all of the leaders that, you know, some are nice and seem to be working for the well-being of others, and others are working for only for themselves. When we look at ourselves, a lot of times we look back and, and we think, well, you know, we are different today. Something is substantively different. And we look and we say, well, look at all the conveniences we have. We have uh, cars. We have hand warmers. We have hair dryers, washers. We have phones and the internet. We have all of these conveniences that no one else has had. We're different from the rest of time. You know, we still have wars. 
We still have rich people that are taking advantage of poor people. We still have corrupt leadership. And yet, if you were to look, and this is statistically speaking, if you were to look at how things are now versus how they were 50 or 100 or 1,000 years ago, child mortality is down. Children are more likely to live. Child labor in the world, that's down. Extreme poverty, down. Hunger, down. Life expectancy, up. If you look statistically speaking, it is a better world now than before. And yet, that's not my point today. Because you might think that I'm trying to convince you that the good of today is better than the good of yesterday, or that our bad today is is not as bad as previous years, but that's not my point. We could go there, but that's not what I'm about. I think Jeremiah is tackling a different question, a different question entirely, where it's not just about convincing you that things are not as bad as they, they're not that bad, but to how it is that we're to exist in a world that seems so bad. How do we inhabit the world that we have that feels so terrible and so awful? This world that would not be of our choosing, choosing, that's undesirable. We get this word from Jeremiah, and God's word is very positive and says, live, exist, get comfy in your life right now. And the word that I want you to hear is inhabit the life that you've been given. So let's look at these things that Jeremiah says. The first one is build houses and live in them. Whether that's a permanent or a semi-permanent place, make your house a home right where you're at. Get to know your neighbors. Join the PTA. The PTA of Babylon? That's a school district I don't want to be in. What do you mean? Yeah, Get comfortable, build houses, live there. But I like my old home. I like where the grocery stores were. I like knowing which direction the school was and that my neighbors were just a few houses away. And God says, don't just build houses, but live in them, exist in them. The second thing that he says is plant vineyards, uh, plant gardens. Now, I can hear as people are listening to the podcast of Jeremiah, they're getting this letter from him. He's off somewhere else, sending them this podcast, plant vineyards, plant gardens. And they're like, what? Do you have any idea how you plant a vineyard or an olive grove? That doesn't just happen overnight. Now, that's kind of unfamiliar to us, but this is ancestral, passed down, generational advancement. Your ancestors are giving you these roots. They're telling you how to care for the plants and the vineyards. You don't just create an olive grove. You don't just create a vineyard out of nothing. Jeremiah, you don't know what you're talking about. I think about my, my own grandmother. She grew, uh, ones that I remember most, okra and asparagus in all of the houses that she lived in. The place where it grew the best was on the farm. She planted the asparagus right next to the 100-year-old outhouse. I don't really know why it did so well, but it did really well. I remember when we moved to our last house, here comes my grandma, knowing that I love asparagus, with a clump of asparagus to plant. You can't just plant asparagus from a seed. It has to be from the plant. 
Sure enough, within a week, I was getting asparagus off of that because of her generational investment in this technology. In fact, when you hear vineyard, you really should think of technology. Olive groves and vineyards is about passing down something that's taken a long time to create. And God says, don't just plant the garden, but eat the fruit of it. Get in the seasonal flow of the world that you're in now and inhabit it. Get in the middle of it. Well, the third thing that he says is get married. Get married in Babylon. Don't you know there are no good wedding venues here? We're captive people. What do you mean get married in Babylon? Why don't we just wait? Because if we listen to these other prophets, we're going to be out of here soon and we can have a better wedding venue. We can have it back in our old places of worship. Well, Jeremiah challenges them to get comfortable in life and to take the risk of marriage. To risk joining together two sets of ancestors, two different histories, two different sets of biology, to bring together the difference of two people that gets brought together in a spark, in a partnership. Now, this is probably not going to win me uh, any friends, but in a marriage, you're not really committing to the other person. You're committing yourself to God. You first commit to God. If we cannot commit ourselves to the great other, to someone, something beyond ourselves, then we're going to have a hard time committing ourselves to another human being. But when two people are committed to the great other, when they're committed to letting that relationship be an expression, a place of learning of what it is to serve God, then good things can happen. Again, I'm not going to win any, win any points with this one. You know, arranged marriages work pretty well. I'm not saying I condone them, but they came along a lot earlier than Hollywood, than the rom-com movie, than romance novels. Romance is not bad. It's not something to be afraid of, but it's not the whole story. It's not all there is because marriage is a partnership of seeking to serve God in the way that you love another person, of committing to God and showing relationship to them. And it takes a real, real bit of patience to be with a contrasting person, to be with someone who's different from you in every way, shape, or form. And yet it's a place of sexual freedom and sexual joy. It's a place of reproduction. It's a place where God brings life. Well, there's one more thing. Give your kids in marriage. So not only build your houses and live in, plant vineyards and eat them, get married and bear children, but help those children to find a life outside that is on their own. Now, raising a kid, man, that's a whole other life course that God gives us. Whew. You learn a lot about yourself. You learn so much about how selfish you are, or you remember what you were like when you were a kid. It is challenging and trying and difficult, and yet it is a place where we tend to forget what our goal is. That we're not about trying to communicate all of the rules to that child. We're about trying to raise that tiny little being from being helpless and dependent in every way to being able to make decisions on their own. To be able to slowly but surely be able to be unhooked from us. Now that's challenging for us as parents to think. 
Is there still a role for us to give advice and guidance? Well, sure. Yeah, we've got wisdom. It's not always listened to. But our role is about helping our kids survive and thrive, giving them opportunities to succeed and to fail when they're under our roof and to help them grow into what's next. Now, when we look at this, it's great. I mean, if you summarize it, it sounds beautiful and prosperous. Build homes, live in them, eat vineyard, or plant vineyards and eat the fruit. Marry, bear children, help those children find others to bury, to increase. If you look at verse 6, that's basically what it is. God says, multiply, increase, don't decrease. And here's where I kind of need a, a little side note. Because some of you might be listening there and think, oh, he's saying that the only way I can follow God is if I get married. The only way I can follow God is if I have children. That's not what I'm saying at all. I don't think that's what Jeremiah is saying. Jeremiah is saying, settle where you're at. Inhabit the life that you've been given and be creative. The truth is, singleness is a gift. It's a gift. Even barrenness can be a gift. And if you want to talk about exile, single people or barren people, they can tell you a lot about what it means to be in exile. So this is a message that's much bigger than just, oh, being a cog in routine and getting into some kind of family routine. That's not it. This is what I want you to hear. This is what I want to impress upon you today. That this life is worth the risk of death. And it is a time where you can inhabit your life and ask yourself this question. In this moment of my life, what is it that I can offer that gives glory to God right now? How am I uniquely equipped for this moment to be a certain person in the world that only I can be? Whether I'm single or married, whether I have kids or don't, who is it that God is calling me to be right now? That is a creative venture of inhabiting your life that moves beyond boredom and routine. It gets you to think about how you might glorify God with your life, to expand your horizons, to, to begin to see what God's plan is for you, to release fear about this world, to release fear about the future or the past, to not be controlled about those things, but to be confident that God has plans for you, to be able to love the people that God has placed you around, to be able to love Babylon and to recognize God at work in Babylon. The exile was a great place to teach the people of God about God. For too long, they'd had God all to themselves as a local God, a city God in Jerusalem, their God. And now, having been pushed outside of the boundaries of their country, they have to see God as a universal God. That God can be in charge even when every billboard seems to indicate that God is not in charge. When all the temples in Babylon are worshiping other gods, God still rules. We have to think about that too. About our own view of God. Do we think that God is just about blessing the United States of America? Or does God have a vision for the entire world? Is God about blessing the whole world? Is God a John 3, 16 and 17 kind of God? 
sent his son into the world not to condemn it, but to save the world through it. The world, that means everyone. That's who God is focusing on. And here in New Mexico, here in the United States, here in whatever neighborhood you are in, it can feel like Babylon. Well, I've thought a bit about what I would do if I were in that situation with Philip Hancock. I mean, you might not have ever thought about there being an atheist chaplain, but what about me as a chaplain? What would I say? What would I offer? I would tell you, and it might surprise you, that I'd be more prone to listen because that's what chaplains do. They're not directing, they're not coercing people in to do what they want them to do. But still, as an exercise in my mind, the passage that comes to me is John 14, 27, where Jesus is visiting with his disciples and explaining to him that he, that them that he's about to die. Jesus, the full expression of God, the, the way God has most fully revealed himself to us is explaining, yes, I'm about to die. I'm about to die at your hands, to die at the, the hands of the political and religious authorities of this time. And what Jesus says is, my peace is not the same kind of peace that the world offers. My peace is different. In fact, my peace is such that I'm going to go away from you so that I can come back to you. Jesus' peace is one where he's present with us. And the world has been better because Jesus showed us that God is willing to go to death even at our hands to show the kind of life that he wants to infuse in us. And that this life is not what we would want. And so even though we might be in a prison cell, we might have difficult conversations. You know, I'm not a fan of the death penalty as a Christian. I might have been a greater fan of giving Philip Hancock a little bit more time to come to an understanding. I might have been for more of a life sentence like what the people of Israel got whenever they were exiled. Time to think. Time to come to the realization of what God is about. This life sentence is one that allows us to be drawn closer to God where we might find peace in very difficult times. That we might find comfort from a God who says, don't worry. Don't worry about what you see. This isn't final. This isn't the last word at all. But settle down right where you are. What you see now is not the sentence for all eternity. There will be peace, and it's coming. In the midst of our suffering, the difficulties that we face is actually preparation for the redemption that God is bringing to us. What God will bring us, some in this life and certainly in the next life. And so I'm sad. I still remain sad when I get to the end of the article and I realize that God is completely absent. That God, whenever we pursue God on our own or choose to walk away from God, I'm sad about what we lose. We lose community. We lose accountability. We lose people that will look us in the eye and say, well, yeah, I mean... Maybe you didn't mean to kill those people, but there are consequences for your actions. And being in prison is a consequence of your action. And sometimes we just have to settle with that, but that's not the end. We lose the community that allows us to be responsible. 
And we become, maybe even if we say, I'm just going to do this church thing on my own, this solo venture with God, we may not realize it, but when we are the only Christian in our own little closet at home, we put ourselves on railroad tracks to become our own God. We're not listening to other voices. We're not being challenged to be responsible. And that's a big risk that I'm not willing to take. It's actually even a spiritual and mental train wreck that's not headed for success. It's headed for disaster. So how? How do we exist? We live in the now. We get creative in this present moment. We hear this word of God echoing to multiply, to increase right where we are. And we begin to think to ourselves, how is it that I might glorify God with my job, with the people that I'm given to love, with the responsibilities that I have? How is it that I can fully and maybe uniquely glorify God with what He has given me and put me in this station in life? Not just waiting till later. Not waiting till some promised land in the future, some return from exile, but right now, who is God calling us to be? Let's pray. God, thank you for not only creating this world, but taking up residence in this world in the form of Jesus and showing us how we can have relationship with you, intimate, close relationship. And thank you that you left. That in the form of Jesus, you left this earth and sent your Holy Spirit to reside in this world that you've created, specifically to reside in people who will confess you, confess your Son, and welcome the gift of the Holy Spirit. Father, we ask that you surround us, that you baptize us with your presence, that we will exist in the here and now in the work that you are doing in this world, that we will offer people listening ears and hope, not for some death insurance, but hope right now for the kind of life that you want to live with us in the present moment. This is our prayer through Jesus, who we believe lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit as one God, now and forever. Amen.